Good evening, everyone, and welcome to The Readout on a very big night in news. Special counsel Jack Smith has filed his brief with the Supreme Court opposing Donald Trump's quest for total immunity. Republicans are licking their wounds after yet another election defeat last night. And Maryland Senator Chris Van Hollen joins me after his powerful floor speech accusing Israel of a textbook war crime in Gaza. But we begin tonight with peak America. Today in downtown Kansas City, Missouri, a Valentine's Day mass shooting erupted as the city was celebrating its third Super Bowl title in five seasons. A tragic but not so surprising end to what should have been a dynasty cementing moment for Kansas City football. Instead, today is seared in American memory for a very different and gruesome reason. Police say shots were fired as soon as the rally concluded this afternoon. The shooting occurred west of Union Station near the end of the rally that followed the parade. Twenty two people were injured, including some children. Three people are detained. At least one person is dead. Super Bowl Sunday wasn't too long ago. You can count the days on one hand. An overtime thriller where quarterback Patrick Mahomes led another comeback on the NFL's biggest stage in America's showcase capital. We all watched it, some of us for Usher, some of y'all for Taylor Swift, because Super Bowl Sunday is about more than just football. It's about coming together. It's about repping your team, your city, your state. And that was what today was supposed to be about. Have you ever been in a town that just won the Super Bowl? It is intense. The entire population is out, families, little kids, seniors. This was the massive crowd today in downtown Kansas City, reportedly up to a million people out to celebrate, to be a part of something special. But sadly, being out in public is not so safe for many Americans. Because in America, football isn't king. Guns are king. If the presence of lots of guns and lots of hands made you safer, Missouri would be the safest place on earth. Missouri has appallingly weak gun laws and one of the country's highest gun death rates. Since 2017, the state has allowed people to carry concealed, loaded firearms in public, without a background check or permit. Its gun loss strength rank is 48 out of 50, according to Giffords. Its Giffords scorecard grade is F. The state does not enforce universal background checks, gun owner licensing, or extreme risk protection orders. There are no domestic domestic violence gun laws or assault weapons restrictions. No large capacity magazine bans or waiting periods. Missouri is also a shall-issue state, which means if you want a gun, you shall be sold it. Basically, no matter what. And you can openly carry or conceal carry that firearm, or a bunch of them, without obtaining a permit. Missouri also has a stand-your-ground law. In in case you decide to use your gun to kill someone, you're good in most cases. Let's just take a hard look at this terrifying tableau of America where thousands of human beings wearing Chiefs jerseys, united as fans, as a city, as Americans, only to hear multiple shots coming from the crowd. We've seen this scene so many times. The panic and the fear. The children lost in the chaos, looking for their parents. The people jumping barricades, running, dispersing, hiding. Today also marks the six-year anniversary of the mass shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School that left 17 people, mostly children, dead. Six years ago to the day, and so little has changed. In fact, it's only gotten worse. There are now even Americans who have experienced more than one mass shooting. 
like these parade attendees who experienced gun violence today, as well as at a school years ago. It is very scary. I mean, this is our second situation. Um, I don't know, you know, a while back, about Highland Elementary. Yeah, eight years ago, we were at work at Highlands Elementary where there was an active shooter across the street, and we had to race all the kids to the gym and, you know, wait for the parents to come and get them. So being with my daughter, making sure she's safe is my number one priority. And coming down here to celebrate and then in an, on such a sad note. It's devastating. Joining me now is Manuel Abarca IV, a legislator in Jackson County, Missouri, which is home to Kansas City. He was at the parade today with his young daughter, Camilla, who also joins us. Former Missouri Senator and MSNBC political analyst Claire McCaskill and Brittany Packnett Cunningham, a former member of President Obama's 21st Century Policing Task Force and the host of the Undistracted podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Um, I do want to start with you, Representative Abarca. Um, talk about what happened today. And your daughter is adorable, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. Um, we're glad we're here today. Um, it was celebratory uh, social hour. Uh, it was um, confetti and smiles and sunshine. Uh, and then unfortunately, in the flash of a second, it was screams and terror uh, as we ran into Pierpont's uh, restaurant that's right off the, the inner part of Union Station uh, to hide in the bathroom, uh, not knowing what uh, or if we were going to leave it. Um, thankfully, uh, Camila was pretty brave about the whole thing. But, um, you know, we're glad we're here today. You know, what's tragic, uh, especially seeing your, your baby there, is that, you know, kids her age, as well as kids, my kids age, my kids are in their 20s. They're growing up with this as a part of their way of life, that run, hide, shoot is a part of what they learn in school. It's just standard education for a third grader, a fourth grader, a preschooler. And you can't go to a parade. You're in the legislative business. You're in the government business. Is there any desire among your fellow legislators to make children live a different kind of life than this one? Absolutely. And I think it's something that I'm taking uh, at heart immediately. As soon as uh, we were clear and safe, I texted our general counsel and told them I need that gun legislation immediately for Monday's meeting. I don't care what stands in our way. And as I was leaving uh, with my colleagues at the state legislature, at the city council, we all agreed it's time for us to act. As Democrats, we must act in a state that is a petri dish for terrible gun laws. So we we are going to take a stand here. And uh, the time for prayers is certainly there because I do know several of the victims. Um, but we're going to act. They're, they're, they're not going to be lost in vain. And, and I guess the most important question is, will the people of your state act? Because they are reelecting Republicans who refuse to do anything about gun violence, who make it easier and easier for even the worst people to get their hands on firearms, as many as they want with no permit. Uh, Missouri ranks, as I mentioned, near the bottom in terms of gun safety in this country. And most of the deaths from uh, firearms in your state are suicides. Um, yeah. Do you see any movement among the voters of your state to elect different kinds of elected officials? Yeah, I think there were nearly a million voters there today, I hope. Uh, the reality is the governor was also present. Many Republican state reps were there. If they're not seeing this now as an opportunity to change their ways, uh, hopefully we're willing to kick them out. And I will gladly lead that effort, uh, as I know Senator McCaskill has done in the past. 
Jackson County Legislator Manuel Abarca IV and his adorable daughter, thank you very much for being here. And I'm so glad that you and your baby are safe. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Joining me now is Claire McCaskill, as well as Brittany Packnett Cunningham. I'm going to start with you, Claire, because you are a statewide legislator in the state of Missouri. Uh, I know it's supposed to be Missouri. So, you know, I'm going to use my Midwest uh, accent and say Missouri. Um, Why won't legislators in the state of Missouri change it? Well, you have to understand that Missouri is dominated by MAGA. Um, Missouri is dominated by a Republican Party that sees absolutely no problem with telling a 12-year-old girl that she must give birth to her stepfather's baby after she has been victimized by incest for a year, but tells her 12-year-old brother, yeah, you can carry an AR-15 openly, publicly, anywhere you want. In Missouri, and the police can't even stop you or take it away from you. That's the state we're living in. That's how extreme our laws are. And they are in a race to make it even more extreme every single day. I mean, Joy, put think about this for a minute, especially in light of Children's Mercy calling for parents to please contact them because maybe one of the many children they're treating for gunshot wounds at Children's Mercy, which is just a few blocks from Union Station, uh, that maybe their children are there and their parents haven't been able to find them. Just keep in mind that there was a bill put on the floor in the House of Representatives in Missouri that said, you know, we're going to ban children from openly carrying weapons in public places without adult supervision, right? Now, what do you Mm -hmm. think? Probably 90% of America supports that. 95% of America supports that. Guess what happened? The Republicans in Missouri voted it down. They wanted to make sure that children could openly carry any weapon they wanted, no permit, no training, without adult supervision in public places. So no wonder The governor is running in fear today at this rally with his security detail why children are getting shot up right around the corner. Yeah, you know, Brittany, you were also from Missouri. um, And it is it is a strange thing when you have people who actually do want to legislate. I mean, they've been real active in the state of Missouri. They have been legislating a potential death penalty for women who get an abortion. They've been legislating uh, nixing any sort of exceptions for people who are victims of rape and incest. They also have to carry uh, the, the, you know, the child of their rapist. Um, you had a legislator there say that, well, if you don't stop abortion, a one-year-old could get an abortion, which is Physically and scientifically an impossibility, but he still said it. They're saying things like that. These people don't even know, apparently, anatomy or science. But they like to legislate. They just want to legislate women, not guns. Your thoughts? That's exactly the point. Missouri does not trust pregnant people to make decisions about their own bodies, but they most certainly trust people uh, to come in and privately sell a firearm and not have to perform any background checks as long as it's done um, at a gun show. By the way, Joy, the Kansas City gun show is actually coming up next week. It starts on February the Mm. 17th. 
And I wonder if the host of that gun show, the state of Missouri, will have any consciousness toward what that symbolizes, because they haven't closed the gun show loopholes. As you've already said, they don't require a permit to carry, a permit to purchase. They absolutely don't restrict uh, assault weapons. They don't restrict any domestic violence, gun violence. And if a Republican is going to argue with me and say, this is not about guns, it's really about mental health. Well, guess what? Missouri allows the the restoration of gun rights to people people who have been found to be mentally incompetent by the courts. So we can all stop that fallacy right now. The truth of the matter is Missouri has not ever cared about life. If they did, um, then we would see these guns off the street. There were 800 uniformed law enforcement officers today at the rally. And what that tells me is that even with all that security, we're not able to actually prevent these things because the guns are still getting into people's hands. You want to value life? Stop that. Indeed. Um, You know, just to give you sort of a sense of this, the gun law strength again in Missouri is 48 out of 50. Gun death rate, 6 out of 50. Gun deaths per 100,000, 24.4. The percent difference in the national average, 70 percent. And since 2017, complete open carry uh, without a license. Um, I was just in St. Louis, Claire. And what I saw was a lot of need, need for jobs, a lot of deindustrialization, a lot of factories that are closed, a lot of economic want. Missouri really probably could use an influx of people who want to come there based on, I don't know, them winning Kansas City, winning the Super Bowl, and it, it, it sort of causing a rebirth of interest in cities like Kansas City. Who would feel safe going to a parade in a state where anyone around you with no permit and who might have mental issues is carrying and packing? Why would anyone go to any public event there? Well, I frankly, Joy, I think it's getting to the point all across America. And, mm. uh, you know, I, and we are really in a place where our country has spent so much time worshiping, worshiping at the altar of guns that we've lost touch and how out of touch our country is with the rest of the world. They all think we're crazy to have this many guns floating around without the proper gun safety laws in place, without the proper safeguards in place to make sure that guns are only being used in ways that make sense and that is safe for everyone. And, you know, listen, the economic situation in St. Louis is complicated. We have a lot of good things going on. Kansas City, frankly, has been a real growth story over the last decade. There are many parts of my state I'm very proud of, and those are two parts of my state that I can certainly say with confidence that the majority of the people there want these laws to change. The problem is the majority of the Republicans that are in leadership positions aren't faced with urban violence. They're not faced with the fact that these police officers, I mean, think about these police officers. They're used to running towards danger. I mean, I'll never forget when there was a photograph of a couple of young black teenagers walking down the street in St. Louis with AR-15s. And one of these Republican legislatures from the rural areas actually had the nerve to say, look what's going on in St. Louis. And I'm going, hello, that's because you voted it in, you idiot. You're the one who made that legal. What are police supposed to do? Say, would you mind not doing this? 
you know, they have made this legal and the split between rural and urban in Missouri is making it very difficult for the people in Kansas City and St. Louis and a few other places in the state that want sanity. They don't want the extremes. They don't want the worst abortion restrictions in the country and the most lax gun laws in the country. But that's what we got until people wake up and start voting these folks out. You mentioned the police. Uh, Brittany, I want to play for you the police chief um, in Kansas City and what she said repeatedly during her press conference today. We also know that officers ran towards danger. Officers were there to keep everyone safe. We had over 800 law enforcement officers, Kansas City and other agencies, at the location to keep everyone safe. Because of bad actors, which were very few, this tragedy occurred, even in the presence of uniformed law enforcement officers who, again, ran towards them and took them into custody. You know, it struck me as I heard her say that probably about four or five times. That's what police are supposed to do, right? I mean, we've reached a point where the braggadocio is that police did what they're being paid to do, as opposed to what happened in Uvalde, Texas, where they refused to act. You know, we are on this anniversary of what happened at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, where the police officer also did not appear uh, to act with great valor. But we're, we've reached a point now where that's that's what the press conference is, bragging that the police did what they're being paid to do. I mean, that's what they're paid to do. That's not an answer to stopping gun violence. But I'm going to you were on the 21st century policing uh, uh, community and I wasn't. So I'm just going to let you comment. No, it's not an answer. And here's what we need to remember. This time, the police were doing their job and their job, for the most part, is to respond to violence after it has already occurred. So when folks across this country, especially those in black movement spaces, have been emphasizing over and over again that we need to have a broad conversation about what true public safety looks like, then that's what we need to be paying attention to. Because true public safety means there aren't uh, there aren't wanting gun laws across the state of Missouri and the ability for anybody to access those weapons. That's not an urban problem. That's not a rural problem. That's not a county problem. That's an everybody problem. And I think it's going to be really easy for legislators in Missouri in particular to call this an urban problem because legislators all across the country have been blaming black people in some kind of assumption that we are predisposed to violence for what they have coded as urban violence. But guess what? These are laws that you passed, and these are laws that you want to protect in order to be able to protect yourself, just as the McCloskeys did uh, in St. Louis when movement organizers and protesters were on their street. So they're trying to make sure that they can stand their ground while the rest of us suffer. Uh, I will note that I, you know, if you people should really travel a lot if you can, if you can afford to get out of this country. I promise you, if you're in Europe, if you're in Ghana, if you're in these other countries, you will never worry for one second about being shot in public. That's one thing you don't worry about when you leave this country and travel. When you get out of this country, you are free from that particular worry. You just don't worry about it. You should ask yourself why that is. Only here do you worry that if you go to the mall, you go to a parade, if you go to any public event, if you're in, you, you worry about getting shot, even in church. Nowhere else, just America. We should ask ourselves why that is. Claire McCaskill, Brittany Packnett, Cunningham, thank you. Still ahead on the readout, special counsel Jack Smith files his response to Trump's claim of absolute immunity, urging the Supreme Court to reject it out of hand. The readout continues after this. 
Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? Evangelical pastor and director of Vote Common Good, Doug Paget, on the rise of Christian nationalism and what's at stake in this year's election. We lack a story in this country about what our politics are supposed to achieve. And when we suggest to them that the common good can be your voting identity, rather than being Republican or being a Democrat or being fiscally this or that, big government or small government, but you care about the common good, people are like, oh yeah, that that I actually care about. That's this week on Why Is This Happening. Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and subscribe. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Special counsel Jack Smith wasted no time responding to the Supreme Court over Donald Trump's request for a stay in his ongoing efforts to delay his federal election interference case with the bogus claim of presidential immunity. It comes only after only one day. uh, It comes one day after receiving the order from the court and six days ahead of the deadline. Out of the gate, Smith sets the tone, writing, The charged crimes strike at the heart of our democracy and goes on to describe the irreparable harm that would be caused to that very democracy if Trump's claims of absolute immunity from criminal prosecution were upheld or even further delayed. Smith writes, quote, that position finds no support in constitutional text, separation of powers, principles, history or logic. And if that radical claim were accepted, it would upend understandings about presidential accountability that have prevailed throughout history while undermining democracy and the rule of law, particularly where, as here, a former president is alleged to have committed crimes to remain in office despite losing an election, thereby seeking to subvert constitutional procedures for transferring power and to disenfranchise millions of voters. Joining me now is MSNBC Lisa, MSNBC legal correspondent Lisa Rubin. Lisa, you have been doggedly going through this filing. Uh, I have hit some of the highlights. Give us more of what you've read thus far. You know, Joy, one of the things that strikes me in reading this is the way in which Jack Smith and his team so rapidly but also effectively subverted and turned on their heads some of the arguments that President, former President Trump and his lawyers were making. One of the things that echoes throughout the briefs that former President Trump has submitted is a president is special. He should be treated specially and differently. And Jack Smith sort of doesn't disagree with that. He just— takes a different tack at it. Yes, presidents are special. We endow them with all sorts of constitutional powers, including the power to take care that his powers are faithfully executed and to respect and venerate the Constitution more than anyone else. And what you are alleged to have done here, Mr. Former President, is of, and this is the quote, unparalleled gravity that necessitates trying this case as quickly as possible, not the delay that you are begging for. Another thing that I think he says that is really interesting, it's really what he doesn't say, Former President Trump's brief to the Supreme Court was suffuse with references to his candidacy. It talked about how he was the Republican frontrunner and indeed the leading candidate to be president of the United States. He talked about the fact that he had an interest in a stay because 
one of the groups that would be irreparably harmed from a trial would be his voters, his supporters, who would be deprived of their First Amendment rights to associate with him and hear his political messages. And again, Jack Smith and his team turn that on their head. They say the public's interest in a speedy trial here is greater than any interest that Trump could have in delaying it, particularly given that what he is accused of doing here is subverting the democratic will of tens of millions of voters. In other words, you claim to stand for the interests of a certain segment of voters, but the accusations at the heart of this case are about your willingness to disenfranchise the tens of millions of people who never voted for you in the first instance. Uh, so we, we've get, we're all getting like a little legal education thanks to Donald Trump getting indicted over and over and over and over again. Uh, one of the terms that you uh, legal eagles throw around is grant cert, cert standing for certiori. Uh, it, it speaks to what the Supreme Court it can do or not do. Uh, what is that and what can the Supreme Court do next? So Trump's petition that we're talking about right here that Jack Smith has replied to is formally a motion to stay all proceedings while he works on and then submits what you referred to as a petition for certiorari. That's just a fancy way of asking the Supreme Court to review a case. And unlike federal appeals courts that don't have a choice, they will take an appeal where the law provides for an appeal as of right. The Supreme Court has discretion over which cases they take. One of the things that Jack Smith was sort of boxed in by was the fact that in December, he too asked this court to review the the case as soon as possible. In fact, he tried to leapfrog the federal appeals court with jurisdiction here, the D.C. Circuit. And so he couldn't say the case wasn't worthy of review. What he instead said was this case is not deserving of a stay. But if you determine that there are enough votes to grant cert, treat Trump's motion for a stay as if it were a cert petition so that we can expedite briefing and get on with this and you can hold oral argument in this case consistent with how you've behaved in other expedited proceedings by March. Got it. And so the, so we're, we're looking at hopefully the Supreme Court hearing it by March. Now, could they just say no? I mean, could they just not hear it? And if they decided not to hear it, then what? Well, first of all, Joy, they can decide as soon as they want to or even when they get a reply from Donald Trump on this motion for a stay that they're not going to grant a stay. And effectively, that's the whole game, because if they're not granting mm. a stay, this goes back to Chanya Chetkin, even if ultimately they are going to consider whether to review the case. However, they can take as much time as they want. That is a nightmarish scenario that some of our journalistic colleagues have floated. They could, for example, consider that they don't have time to decide this case by the end of this Supreme Court term and hold it over until October. I think the public pressure on them to act decisively is too strong, and they will do something in the next few days, couple of weeks, to let us know where their heads are at. Yeah, I think it'd be kind of important for the American people to know whether the president is allowed to use SEAL Team 6 to kill a man, you know, his yeah. political opponents. I, and Probably look, important. I hear that, but they can kind deny of. a stay. And, and yeah. by denying a stay, leaving the D.C. Circuit's opinion in force, that effectively right. answers that same question, right? It was that circuit that said to Trump, are you saying that SEAL Team 6 could be, in, you know, used to kill yeah. your political opponent? And they said no. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that that would be a good answer. I think a good answer for everyone. Lisa Rubin, thank you for explaining all that. We really appreciate you. And still ahead, a Democratic victory in yesterday's special election in New York is just the latest sign that American voters 
are fed up with the Republican Party's refusal to focus on stuff that actually matters, you know, like gun violence. We'll be right back. Jen Psaki. Have you ever seen the House this dysfunctional? Rachel Maddow. If winning the election is his plan to stay out of prison, what happens in that election if and when he does not win it? Mondays, back to back. Talk about the stakes of this back and forth, given Trump's behavior. What do you make of the statement from Hamas? Why they're doing it? What, what do you think it means? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9 p.m. Eastern, Mondays on MSNBC. Hey everyone, it's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Today's violence in Kansas City reminds us that if you want things to change, you have to vote for the people who will change them. The way the current Republican Party functions, don't hold your breath. They refuse to do their jobs. They refuse to work with Democrats to pass sensible gun reform. They refuse to work with Democrats to pass really any type of immigration reform, which they've been screaming about. Heck, they can't even fund the government. Last night, New Yorkers from Nassau County and Queens elected Democrat Tom Suozzi to replace expelled Republican George Santos, partially because of that partisan bickering over immigration. That loss and another special election loss in a Pennsylvania State House election can now be added to a long list of losses for Republicans ever since they followed Donald Trump's descent into fascism. When he says jump, they say, how high, sir? He told them to help try to steal the election. They said, yes, sir. He told them to kill a border deal. They said, yes, sir. He tells them to help Putin by not helping Ukraine. They said, yes, sir. And when it comes to guns, they did nothing. A point Trump proclaimed proudly last week to a bunch of NRA people. During my four years, nothing happened. And there was great pressure on me having to do with guns. We did nothing. We didn't yield. And once you yield a little bit, that's just the beginning. That's the avalanche begins. Mind you, it's been six years to the day that that guy was sitting in the Oval Office when something happened. 17 children were murdered and 17 wounded by their classmate at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Florida, the deadliest mass shooting at a high school in U.S. history. And that was just one of more than 20 mass shootings that occurred while that guy was in office. Joining me now is Michael Steele, former RNC chair and co-host of The Weekend on MSNBC, and David Jolly, MSNBC political analyst and former Republican congressman. And I'll just start by asking you, Mr. Chairman, what is the tipping point when Republican voters, forget the cowardly politicians, say enough? We're just not going to keep putting these people in office who don't care if our fourth graders get killed at a parade or in school. I have to be honest with you. I I don't know if there is a tipping point because you would have thought by now that Republicans in those affected communities, those directly affected, whether it was in Colorado or Florida or Florida or elsewhere, would would rise up uh, and put that kind of political pressure, if you will, on their members. Uh, They haven't. 
Um, there's been a lot of thoughts and prayers. There's been a lot of conversation, but there hasn't been the political will that results uh, in political pressure to create the change that you talked about at the beginning of this conversation. And so I don't know that that pressure is there. You have folks now, and, and David knows this, um, you know, bragging, as we saw the former president do, uh, about doing nothing that somehow that's a badge of honor, even in the wake of what happened in Stoneman Douglas and what happened today, celebrating the, you know, the, the victory of the Kansas City uh, Chiefs with gunfire and the loss of life. That's how we celebrate now in America. No, no event is spared. No, no yep. one is safe. And, and you're talking about a community where, you know, I had someone, you know, listen to uh, someone ask the police officer, uh, the police chief, well, there were 800 officers there. Why? <laughs> why couldn't this be stopped? I was like, dude, well, first <laughs> off, there's a million people on the grounds, but they're in a state where there's open carry. There are no restrictions. So what do you expect the police to do in that environment except to run into the danger as we see there? That's what that's what the result is. That's the conversation now. Did you run into into the danger as opposed to what are we doing to stop the danger from occurring in the first place? Right. I mean, it, it is a remarkable thing, David. I mean, there is no other country where you worry about this. There just isn't. This uh, that's not at war. I mean, you'd worry about it in Ukraine, but that's because they're at war with Russia. Right. But I mean, we understand that Republican politicians don't care about anything other than staying in office. Uh, But don't they care about money? Because winning that Super Bowl could have been an economic boon to Kansas City. Who from another country would want to travel to Kansas City or really, honestly, most American cities? Because it's not safe to be on the streets. It's not safe to be in a mall. It's not safe to be in a movie theater. It's not safe to be in church because in America you could get shot in all of those places and school. So, I mean, at a certain point, don't these Republicans, don't they care about money? Don't they want tourism? Yeah, I, listen, I, I don't think we can ever expect Republican leaders or elected Republicans to change the direction they're going, because, frankly, the money that gets them there is also what keeps them there, the campaign finance money. But I like the way you framed it in your in your question to Michael. When will we as voters, when will the American people actually have had enough and throw the Republicans out? Because we know that Republicans will never do anything about gun safety legislation or gun violence. Democrats would. If Democrats had their way, we would be a safer nation when it comes to gun policy. So what will it take? for voters, because right now, every time there's a mass shooting, it's kind of like you have Americans of all political stripes go into the church, but none of them convert. They come back out and they, they behave as partisan as they always have. And so what tragedy will be enough. I mean, the reality is for where we sit today, we are unique in in the Western world among gun violence. We have to crush the culture of guns on demand in the United States. It should be as hard to get a gun, a firearm as it is to get a security clearance in the White House. We need universal- Or to get an abortion. It should be as hard. I mean, they make it, it's harder to get- Exactly right. We We need to ban weapons of war and we need policymakers that are willing to do that Look, it's okay to change your mind in politics, whether you're elected or whether you're a voter. It's okay to admit you're wrong. It's okay to say maybe the Second Amendment is wrong. Maybe we need to broaden Mm. our horizon about the debate we're having and stop with a small ball and actually try to really change gun culture in the United States. Republicans will not do that. And if gun violence and protecting children and protecting people at a parade is what it should inform your vote, 
then do not vote Republican. There's only one choice, and it's to vote for Democrats. And at the end of the day, Michael, it is up to the voters. I mean, I was in uh, yeah. wonderful Jackson, Mississippi yesterday. I was talking with a lovely Republican gentleman, and we had this conversation. He had to agree with me. Here's the challenge. Republican voters don't seem to want anything. They just want Trump to be happy. Like, there's not an ask, because they, they, we, they claim their ask was immigration. Republicans said, no, we're not passing a bill on immigration, but we'll impeach Mayorkas that's going nowhere in the Senate, impeach this guy who they don't even know who he is. So that they, they don't even really care about immigration. They say they care about it, but they don't really because they're not going to punish right. Republicans for not doing anything on immigration. Literally, you have a base of a party whose only desire is for Trump to smile. When he smiles, they smile. When he's happy, they're happy. They don't even have a policy set of ask. It's just him being happy. Well, the, there is there is one uh, fundamental policy ask that you're overlooking, Joy, with all due respect, of course. And that is own the libs. That's the policy ask. It applies to everything. If we own, if you own the libs for us, we're good. So that's why on on the border, the inconsistency, the hypocrisy on the border, the oh, well, we can't do X until you give us security on the border. Well, here's a border bill. No, we don't want to do that. That that doesn't bother them because it is the act of owning the libs that drives the ethos, that drives the, the that good feeling, that you know, tickle me and rub my belly kind of feeling, right? That's yeah. where a lot of them are. And Trump does that at every turn. And, and they, in turn, do it for him. So there is no, I mean, we're talking about a party that doesn't have a damn platform. We can't even, even if we wanted to have a policy discussion, what would, what would it be on? Their pla- no, they, have a platform. they have a platform. Their platform is, what makes you happy, sir? What can we do for you, sir? What will make you smile, sir? That's the policy platform. What makes you happy, sir? We'll do that. Michael Steele and David Jolly, thank you. We'll be right back. The Israeli military carried out an extensive wave of airstrikes today in retaliation for a rocket attack in northern Israel. The escalation in cross-border attacks threatened diplomatic progress as ceasefire and hostage release talks in Cairo reached no agreement today. Meanwhile, the State Department is investigating reports of harm to Gazan civilians by Israel using U.S.-made weapons. The situation inside Gaza is still dire as Israel vows to move forward with a planned ground invasion of Rafah in the south. More than 28,000 people have been killed in Gaza since the war began, according to the Palestinian Health Ministry, while its population faces potential famine. On Monday, Senator Chris Van Holland of Maryland described the situation, citing recent warnings from the World Food Program. Kids in Gaza are now dying from the deliberate withholding of food. In addition to the horror of that news, one other thing is true. That is a war crime. It is a textbook war crime. And that makes those who orchestrate it war criminals. Senator Chris Van Hollen joins me now. Senator, thank you so much for being here. I would like you to say more um, about um, what you are describing as a war crime. The New York Times does report that Finance Minister Belzil Smotrich has said he's ordered flour shipments not to be transferred to the agency that aids Palestinian UNRWA, uh, citing allegations that some of its employees were affiliated with Hamas. Is that what you're talking about or is there more? 
Well, Joy, I, I, I made that statement on the Senate floor uh, the day I learned from Cindy McCain, uh, who is the head of the World Food Program, that we had crossed this awful threshold from people on the verge of starvation to the fact that kids had died in Gaza of starvation. And Israel has absolutely the right to defend itself against the horrific Hamas attacks of October 7th. But the Netanyahu government does not have the right under international law to restrict access of innocent, innocent Palestinians to food and water to the point of starvation, to the point where kids are dying. That is unacceptable. We, but I, let me let me just push you a little bit on this point, because in the very beginning of these operations, um, I believe it was a defense minister um, from Israel who said, we're turning off the food, we're turning off the water, we're turning off the electricity. So they telegraphed that they were going to stop everything and anything from flowing into Gaza to civilians, clearly. Um, is that a change if this is what's happening now? Because that is what they telegraphed. And that is part of the reason that South Africa has taken them to the ICJ. Well, you're absolutely right. At the very beginning, uh, the Netanyahu government imposed an absolute, se absolute siege on Gaza. Uh, then, uh, after some urging from the United States and the international community, uh, they opened up the Karem Shalom crossing. Uh, which has now allowed a trickle of aid to get through. Uh, but it's still very dangerous to deliver that assistance because every international aid organization that has been, every international aid organization that's been delivering humanitarian assistance around the world for decades says they've never seen a worse situation than in, than in, in Gaza today. And as you mentioned, you know, Prime Minister Netanyahu and these very extreme right wing members of his coalition, like Smotrich, are withholding food assistance. Uh, this flour, this U.S. paid for and provided flour is sitting in a port in Israel, but they've refused to send it to people who are starving in Gaza. So um, that is that is unacceptable. Um, and the United States, in my view, needs to invoke a, a statute, a law on the, of the books, on the books, they're called the Humanitarian Aid Quarters Act, Corridors Act, that says that the United States will not continue to provide security assistance to any country um, that impedes our ability to deliver humanitarian assistance to desperate people. Let me ask you very quickly, should the U.S. also stop sending weapons if they are being used against civilians? Um, particularly given that we've now seen a second Palestinian teenager killed, not in Gaza, but in the West Bank. This is a Palestinian-American, an American citizen boy, 17 years old, shot in the West Bank. What is the U.S. government doing about that? And should the weapons stop flowing? Well, this is exactly why I said on the Senate floor uh, and do believe that we should withhold sending weapons, first of all, until humanitarian assistance can get to people who are literally starving right now. And there's a law already on the books to do that. Uh, it's right. also why myself, along with 18 senators, introduced an amendment to this national security supplemental mm -hmm. that the president then did implement via what's called the national security memorandum, number 20, mm -hmm. that now right. will require, Joy, now will require that all U.S. assistance be provided 
only with promises that the country, in this case, the Netanyahu government, will abide by right. international humanitarian law. It's essential that President with- Biden now implement that requirement. That law. Uh, Senator, thank you. We are short of time, but I really appreciate you being here tonight. Thank you, Senator Chris Van Holland. We appreciate you. We'll be right back. Okay, before I go, I would like to thank all of my readers who are also readers. Get it? See what I did there? I am thrilled and honored to tell you that my new book, Medgar and Murley, and the love story that awakened America, will debut at number one on the New York Times bestseller list this Sunday. Number one, numero uno. I have loved sharing this book with you and meeting All of you, the crowd last night in Jackson, Mississippi, the place where so many of the things in this book took place, was just incredible. Thank you for coming out. Thanks especially to Rena and the Evers family, the and the Evers Institute, the Mississippi Civil Rights Museum, my interviewees, and the First Lady of Jackson, Ebony Lumumba, and her husband, the mayor, too. Uh, And for those of you here in California, I will be at Pomona College in Claremont tomorrow at 7 p.m. Then on Friday, I'll be at Kepler's in Menlo Park, also at 7 p.m. So be sure to go to medgarandmurley.com. For tickets, no, medgarandmurley.com is now. It's msnbc.com slash medgarandmurley. That's the right website. Come and see me. That is tonight's readout. What if millions of black Americans had been compensated for slavery? Join me, Tremaine Lee, as I explore the untold story of one of the only black Americans who ever was. I talk to his descendants and discuss how reparations forever change their family's trajectory and imagine a reality where reparations are paid to the rest of Black America. Into America presents Uncounted Millions, The Power of Reparations, a Black History Month series. All episodes available now 